Welcome back to the Active Life Podcast. I'm Dr. Sean Pastuch, and today we interview Brent Porcio. Brent Porcio is the founder of Top Velocity, where baseball pitchers go to learn biomechanics and strength training principles to reduce the likelihood of injury and increase performance. Brent had a catastrophic injury when he was pitching in high school on his way to college that totally reformed the way that he looked at training and preparing. He's taken that injury experience and turned into something great for athletes all over the place who are flying to Louisiana to learn from Brent his expertise. Brent is working with everything from high school pitchers to professional pitchers. He's even working with some youth pitchers and trying to educate the marketplace of baseball on the importance of education and the importance of movement first as opposed to performance first. I really enjoy interviewing people like Brent because he's so passionate and he's such a disruptor in the space. Um, I look forward to talking to him again. And I think that you guys are going to find that his passion is unmistakable. Um, He certainly has an opinion and whether you agree with him or not, we can all agree that he needs to be heard. So I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. I'm going to let you guys get to it. So today we have the pleasure of talking to Brent Porsche. Did I I say that right? Porsche? Porsche. It's a tough one. Man, you know, I... I actually thought, I was like, man, I'm going to blow his mind. I'm going to say it right the first time. You were close. You're pretty good. Most people destroy it. So you were pretty close. Well, every <laughs> other time I talk to someone down from Louisiana, it's like, no, every letter is silent and it doesn't sound like it's supposed to sound. Well, it is. You know, there's the O's, there's E-A-U, E-A-U-X, and then minus I-A-U. Okay. So those are the O's in Louisiana. Got it. So I will just do some research <laughs> and I'll make sure phonetically I get things right in the future. Right. So, so for those people out there listening who don't know who you are, Brent, I'm going to give them a brief introduction. I'm going to ask you to kind of tell them a little bit more. Yeah. So Brent owns uh, Top Velocity Baseball, right, which is essentially a pitching clinic, correct? Like a pitching school for for pitchers. To yeah, come I like out. a school. I like school or think tank. I think that sounds cool. Okay. A pitching school or think tank. Um, But the idea of it is, is really education first and, and, and understanding why, as opposed to just understanding what and doing as you're told, because you've been told, right. That that's kind of the gist that I get from. Exactly. We're trying to break the conventional wisdom, which in baseball is really, really thick because it's such an old sport. And then um, it's a, it's a very stubborn sport. I've yet to, I'm going to have theories on that, but yes, it's, I'm trying to break through this conventional wisdom um, of baseball, which really rides on theories and how they, that person was taught, not, not so much on the science and data driving uh, the, those approaches. Yeah. And I think that's cool. That's what draws me to you, right? I think that's one of the things that when, when I first heard you speak, I was like, oh, this guy's actually talking about force plates and you know, mobility and flexibility and, you know, hip to shoulder separation and talking about the actual torque that that produces, as opposed to just throwing buzzwords out there. I thought that was pretty cool. Cool. So that that was my mission. What's that? That was my mission. I mean, that's what I wanted to do because it, it stems from me trying to do it for myself personally. Well, so where did this come from for you? Right. I mean, there's a lot of pitching coaches out there. 
There's a lot of baseball coaches out there. There's a lot of coaches out there. Why are you so hell bent for lack of a better word, um, on educating people on the way that you've learned how to do this? Because my story, you know, I wasn't the major league baseball player, but I still haven't met a lot of guys who've been through what I've been through. So I tore my rotator cuff at 18. Um, I tore the supraspinatus and they also shaved off the, the, uh, chromium tip to kind of give me some more room. I had a really pretty much tight shoulder cap. So I was just, I had a lot more than that. That was probably just a surgeon's perspective and and that's how they went at it. But I also had tons of uh, elbow problems before that, about eight, maybe eight quarter zone shots. Um, in high school? in high school and then eventually went into my elbow and it was my pain was so bad i couldn't sleep at night i was taking every painkiller i could take icy hot and i was i would hit my arm in between innings because i I rather would rather feel the hit of me slapping my arm than the throbbing sensation that the the, that was coming from it just the damage and it it was just perfect storm right i'm 18 years old i i'm I'm a late bloomer so i'm way underweight than i than i got later on in life and I'm in my, you know, I'm going to JUCO because I, I didn't really impress D1s enough. And so this has given me a couple of years to f- fill out and impress them. And then I'm, I'm, I'm in my first outing, fourth inning. And it's like out of a movie. And I, and I throw a pitch and it just, it gives out. I mean, it's the, that was the perfect definition of dead arm. My arm is just laying there. I can't even move it. And, uh, and then I had to go right into surgery pretty much after that. And, and that's what drove it. So, I mean, it's like when, when that's your experience and that's, you know, and, and you become a coach from that. I mean, obviously I, I, I was able to recover. And, well, and I want to stay there for a second because I, I, yeah, I know, ahead. I know that's not the end of your story. Right. So I think that what comes next, I would love to hear more about how did you get from dead arm going into surgery within a week to pitching again? So, I went into the surgery and it was crazy before surgery I had not mononucleosis. So they wouldn't even do surgery until I had the mono out of my system. So then I had surgery and then I come out of surgery and I'll never forget the doctor looking me right in the face after surgery. And he says, Brent, look, I went into your arm and it was a lot worse than I thought. And I just want you to know it's going to be a brutal recovery for you. And I, I don't see you playing again. And I'm like, okay, why did you have to just tell me that? I mean, I was already depressed enough. <laughs> I went in, seriously, I went into severe depression. I, I, my mother got me with a psychiatrist. I had to start reading a lot of books because I went to other doctors and they told me the same thing. Yeah, you'll never play again. And so there was this pinnacle moment where, you know, I, I remember I was sitting, my mother was a school teacher and I was sitting in the auditorium of the school and above the, the auditorium was a saying that said, where there's a will, there's a way. And I'll never forget it. It was a moment where I said, if that's true, then I'm coming back to baseball because it just told me if I have a will and I've got a crazy will, I was like, then if that's true, if the way will present itself, I'm coming back. And, and I just decided to, to jump on, on it and say, look, even if I don't pitch again, I'm going to figure out what went wrong. I'm going to figure out if it, there's any way possible to get back to this, I'm going to find it somehow. And it was that obsessive drive at that moment, which I had, you know, as a kid, it was born in me, but I turned it from trying to kill myself to be a major leaguer to trying to kill myself to get back to baseball. And then it just took me down this path of, Hey, I don't want to hear your theories. I want you to prove it to me. I like that. I don't want to hear it. I want to, I want to feel it. 
Right. Because when you're desperate, you really don't want to hear people talking to you. You want to see it happen. Well, so I have a question for you that I wasn't actually planning to ask before we came on. Right. And, and sitting in the other seat, right? I'm the doctor. People come to me and ask, what do I have to do? Am I going to be able to play again? A lot of people come to us because we tell them, yeah, if, if you're willing to work for it, you can play again. We don't know what your ceiling is as compared to before, but but we're going to do everything we can to find out. And sometimes I ask myself, am I being responsible telling this to an athlete who has a road that is so much longer than someone who never had the injury? Or should I be telling this guy, look, you can, but the chances are so slim. Where do you sit on that? Well, I'll just look at my experience. I had several doctors, well-known doctors. You know, one was the one with the Saints staff here, the NFL team. The other one was LSU's big doctor. The other one was Tulane's doctor. I went to all of them around here, and they all said, you never play again. So I had that doctor saying, you're done. You never play again. And then I had someone like Kurt Hester, who was the head strength coach, um, or is the head strength coach at Louisiana Tech, was, was uh, the assistant at LSU, mainly worked with baseball and built a, a legacy known as Gorilla Ball back during the 90s. And I sat down with him, and then he says, Brent, look, I don't know much about the techniques of, of baseball or throwing. So he goes, I don't know if you'll throw again, but I'll make you the biggest, strongest, fastest guy on the field. And so that was that me to me, a mentor telling me or, or a professional and telling me that, yes, you, you, it's possible, you, you know, you, you can do this. You can come back and, and, and live your dream or, or reach these goals. And that inspired me. So it's like both of them inspired me. So you can either be both as a doctor. You could either be the one that tells them no, and then they go, screw you, I'm going to prove you wrong. Or you can be the one that tells them yes, that inspires them. But you're the, if you tell them yes, you better show them the way because right. they're, they're going to invest in you. Sure. No, I, I think that's, that's what we always try to do. That's, that's our aim, right? People are coming to us with, hey, I've been told no a thousand times. I'm just knocking on another door now. Um, and it's always interesting. It's, it's that dilemma that goes through my mind where now what I do is I basically tell them what I just said, you know, Hey, I don't know, but if you can, then we can. Yeah. I mean, anything's possible. I mean, of course there's limitations to that statement too, but really you, you can accept anything's possible because you just don't know what situation you're in. If you're that kid who's injured and everyone's telling me you're never going to play again, you don't know at all what is possible. So basically, you're, the only options you have is to just give up, which you'll never at the end of your life will respect, or you go out and you try to figure out what possibilities do exist for you, and you'll be so much better, but it takes work. So take me through your system a little bit, if you don't mind. Right? I mean, you, you went through this, this personal exploration. You said, what do I need to do? Kurt Hester kind of helped you to get back on board. What were some of the things that he was implementing that nobody else even considered? Well, he was, he was really continuing his legacy of what he did at LSU. So if we look at LSU, pretty much when he got there, maybe 93, 94, they won five national championships in about 10 years. I mean, Skip Bertman had a lot to do with that, the head coach, but he really relied, he really put his arm around Kurt and, and relied on Kurt to train his guys. And, and Kurt took this approach, which was forbidden or taboo in baseball at the time which was I'm going to train these guys like beasts and I'm going to make them all explosive power athletes. And baseball just wasn't doing that. So he exploited kind of what at the end of the day, I mean, he wasn't doing it with drugs, but he kind of exploited the same thing that, that steroids did to the game because you can build athletes to be 
you know, to, to exceed their genetic potential of power production, um, you know, explosiveness through, uh, through a good approach to lifting. And that's what he did. And he turned these guys into beasts and they just, you know, they just walked through NCAA and were in the world series almost every year. So he, he basically just implemented that in his own private training after that. And I just followed that road. And, and the crazy thing was I probably never would have accepted it before the injury. I would have just said, Hey, no, baseball tells me I shouldn't do that. I'm not going to do it. Cause I was a very obedient guy just following what was expected of me. But once I got hurt and I met Kurt Hester, I didn't care that, you know, it was like, I'm already damaged. So who cares? Let's do it. And it gave me hope and I fully committed. And then I got to experience what LSU had experienced through those, that decade of, of national championships. It, it, it's amazing what desperation and a little bit of foolishness will do for somebody, <laughs> right? It like, you, you know what? I am willing to do whatever needs to be done. And if no one's doing that and you're saying that might work, then fuck it. Let's well, do it. You know, I hate comparing this to steroids. I mean, that was a, it's a really tough situation, but I remember the stories of Jose Canseco. He was my idol. And at the end of my story, I got to play with him, which was really cool. But Jose Canseco had that moment he, in his book that he, uh, his dying mother, and, he, and his mother wa- wanted him to, to be successful. And he said, mother, I promise you on her deathbed, he would be successful. So there, there's a moment of adversity that does create desperation and really leads into this, this, this mentality of I will survive, I will succeed. Sure. Listen, I mean, it's, 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 I'm not looking to compare ourselves to Kurt Hester or to Jose Canseco or to you. Um, that said, what, what we do in the space that we're in is totally contrary to what everybody else is doing. Right. You know, you it's, do. it's, it's the idea of you need to do more is what most people are telling most people. Most coaches are telling their athletes, you need more, you need more, you need more. We're telling them you probably need less and you're also probably doing the wrong things. Yeah. Um, but let's go back to when you said baseball wasn't using these techniques, because I think that most of our listeners are not that well versed on baseball in general. And I think they'd be surprised to learn that baseball is really still not using these techniques. Right. It's really weird. Um, just the hierarchy of the the game all the way up to the major league level and the the caliber of how how players or people become coaches. You know, when players become coaches, they become coaches to really kind of continue their their ego as a player, which is a horrible thing to do. And they do it. And then there's those who become coaches because they weren't great players. And this this ego to prove themselves in any way possible, but they weren't a player. So unfortunately, I feel like you just get a bunch of egos coaching kids. But what about the uh, guys who get into it for the right reason? Why do, yeah, why do you- those are there. They're there. Those are there. And they're great people. And I've met some of the greatest people in baseball coaches, and I can name them all, but they do not outweigh the egos. You really have to weed through a lot of coaches to find the good one. I believe and then, when, and then those, these good ones are the ones that are willing to help when the kid's desperate and when the kid really needs something, they're willing to get out of their ego and do what they were told or what worked for them and go research and discover and, and find the, the, the right remedy or the right prescription for that player. So I think that when most people look at professional sports, especially, right, they assume, well, no, it's a meritocracy, the best rise. So, so yeah, right now you have the best 30 guys 
coaching baseball. And that means that you have the best 30 strength coaches coaching baseball and the best 30 athletic trainers coaching baseball, right? So is, is it is it not totally <laughs> – you're shaking your head. But, you know – how, how does you know how how does how does it go to the fact that all the way at the top these guys are still doing things that just don't make people athletes? Because in in any business, uh, it's who it's who you know, not what you know. And and baseball, I guess we look at baseball and we see the players, the better players are rising to the top. There's not a lot of politics at the end or at the top level. But I mean, you could argue that. But typically, we see that it's not the same with coaches. Coaches can get all the way to the top because they knew somebody not because they were the better coach. And unfortunately, baseball's never figured it out. I think baseball's problem is they play too much. So they're, they're mostly on a field. So what is a strength coach really going to do with a guy who's pretty much on the field every day? Um, so it, it doesn't create an environment for like football where, where they're in practice a lot and where they can, it really matters on how good they're getting in practice. It's the opposite. It matters how good they're getting in a game in baseball. So it really handcuffs the strength coach and handcuffs the medical staff. There's not much they can do when they're playing that many games and that's that's the real problem with baseball baseball re needs a restructure the biggest problem that that's conventional or that's been just pushed through through the times is the fact that they they play way too much they shouldn't be playing that much and and because of that it really makes it hard uh for the staffing to develop them and then therefore the the, the front office knows that they don't really need great strength coaches at the end of the day because um you know the the guys are they don't get to influence them that much. And so they don't, they don't hire great strength coaches. They just hire, I feel like guys that, that they like, and, uh, and then it trickles down and then, and then the nightmare, unfortunately trickles down. Well, I think it also, um, I think the strength coaches who are at the league level would all would all would all speak differently. They would all say, "No, that's well, not." I'm the not trying to insult. I know I'm. Bl it's a blanket statement. No, no, I, 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 I got that too. There, but you don't find a lot of them. I understood what you were saying, and I did. I wasn't. I wasn't disagreeing with you. Um, yeah. What 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 I mean is, it's it's just it's interesting in baseball, especially, right? Because to me, as a as a former mediocre baseball player. Right. That's, that's what I was. Let's, let's call a spade a spade. I was a late bloomer who who is still waiting to fill out. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, there's, I don't, I don't see why these guys don't find it imperatively important to develop athletes who also happen to play baseball as opposed to developing baseball players who might be athletic. Do you, do you like follow? I said, they, they, but they just don't get the time with them. I mean, so think about when is the strength coach gets the time? Like the player shows to the club at twelve o'clock and he leaves at ten, and and there's not a lot of stuff he wants to do before the game or after the game. So the the the, the client is constantly telling the strength coach, "I can't do this. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that." So do you? So one thing that football has that baseball doesn't that I think is kind of a double edged sword that would solve a lot of these problems, but that also would create its own little set of problems as a combine. Right. I mean, yeah. the NFL yeah. combine needs huge overhaul, in my opinion. So I'm not here stating that the NFL combine is the be all and the end all. But baseball but doesn't even have one. <laughs> baseball has nothing. There's yeah. there, there's no opportunity for measurables. There's no opportunity to see if nothing else, which guys like being in the gym. Yeah. And, and it's crazy up till social media. You had no idea a baseball player was in a gym. And now you have social media and I don't even think major league baseball knew it because now that with social media and we see them doing that now their, their marketing campaigns are, Hey, let's highlight the best, uh, 
workout routine for the off season and they link it to their social accounts where they're showing it. So, you know, it's, it's baseball is now starting to show, Hey, we might have athletes here. And I think they're figuring it out, but you're right. They do need a combine. But if you think of the history of the combine, cause I've looked in this for years, I think the Pittsburgh Steelers were the ones that really start the combine. They did it privately. And then they took off. They started getting all the best draft picks. And then uh, eventually the rest of the league uh, jumped on board with that. And I think baseball is missing a great opportunity because what happens is when you show, Hey, we have athletes too. Obviously that's going to help all of their scouting. But when you show to the public, we have athletes too, then you become even more of a competitor to football. When you have these young kids growing up, knowing they're just great athletes, they don't know if they can play baseball going, Hey, there's great athletes over there making good money. I think I want to do that too. I think I think baseball is missing a, a huge opportunity. Well, I think when you look at baseball right now, some of your best players are the best athletes in the league. You know, Bryce Harper, no. Mike Trout are studs. No, but, I mean, um, uh, Harper says he's, he can clean 375. I don't know if you heard that. I don't know if I believe it, but he claims <laughs> he can clean 375. Do you believe it? I don't know. I, I, I've been, <laughs> I've been, I've been following that guy's progression since high school and they told him he couldn't play in a metal bat league anymore. So I, I, I wouldn't be shocked, I um, know. but let's, you know, one of the things that, that when I look at baseball players, right, that I, I don't want to say it bothers me. I just, it's, it's something that I never really understood, right? Is people come in and say, I don't throw hard enough. So I need to add shoulder strength, right? As if their shoulders doing the work, where does that come from? You're in it, right? Where, where does the idea that I don't throw hard enough, I need to improve my shoulder strength as if I was going to stand still and just use my shoulder to throw. Where does that idea what? come from? I think I think of this all the time. I think you, you have to go back to the source. And I'm just going to say the source is the education system. We're obviously not teaching these kids physics and kinesiology young enough. Because if they were learning how the body works together to move, you know, forces through the body, you know, the physics of it, they would understand, hey, what makes me throw hard is probably my whole body, not just my arm. But unfortunately, they're all very ignorant of it. So when they throw something, they feel it come out their hand and they feel how their hand uh, has to get in positions to do it. And and that's what they're thinking of half the time. So they just think, well, that's got to be the whole equation, right? There's nothing else to it. And and, and it's just, to me, it's just not a good understanding of of how it works. So I guess I have to go down to education and say, come on, we got to teach these kids physics and kinesiology because, you know, we, they don't, they don't understand the concepts of it when it even comes to playing a sport or, or, or just basic movement. You know, it's interesting. I remember when I was in high school, I had a pitching coach. I, when I say I had a pitching coach, I should use that loosely. I had a guy who worked with me from time to time on how to pitch, um, but he was good. He was a smart guy. And he used to talk to me about the same way that we talk to athletes now about when you're deadlifting, your arms are like straps, right? They're just kind of hanging there. I mean, they're involved. So the people who are really, really critical of, deadlift technique. I'm not suggesting that there's nothing going on in the arms, but the idea that the arms are secondary was, is very clear, right? And when he was talking to me about pitching, he would say, your hand should swing out of your glove like the arm of a clock swinging around, right? And that then your momentum is going to carry your arm forward and you're going to support the ball the rest of the way. Wow. He was pretty good. He was really good. His, I mean, his son <laughs> pitched at Florida State. I don't know if that has anything to do with his pitching coaching prowess, but he, he, he connected to me on a good level. But then 
the exercises that he gave me were shoulder exercises. And, <laughs> and even in high school, I was like, this kind of seems like a divergence, but I'm going to do it because that's what he told me to do. Um, I just, I don't, I don't, everyone always told me drive off your back leg, drive off your back leg or pull with your front leg. Whichever way they wanted to talk about it, right? Tom Seaver was a guy they used to bring up and they'd show that his back leg was always dirty when he would pitch. But no one was talking about building leg strength. Same thing. You, you, you hear the scout go, man, look at, this, look at this big kid. He must throw hard. But yet they don't look at a little kid and say, you need to get big to throw hard. I mean, you, you'll find these, <laughs> these, you know, these oxymorons or whatever you want to call them constantly from these coaches. You can tell the end of the day they don't really understand the full equation they don't have the big picture at the end of the day they really don't know how it all works they know bits and pieces and they can give you bits and pieces but at the end of the day there's a very few that understand how the whole uh, puzzle goes together well i can tell you that when i tried out for the team at maryland the coach certainly understood the value of size or at least in my opinion overvalued size because i remember when he told me when he cut me son you're just not big enough well, yeah, no, that's what I said. They love to use that, but yet they don't make it sound like, well, then everyone's got to get big who's not big. Right. It's either you're big, you must throw hard, but if you're small, yeah, we don't want you to get big. Right, 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 right. right. <laughs> how does this work? Right. But so, so how does a sport like baseball, because this is really about more than baseball, right? I'm, we're talking about baseball because that's where you live. It's, it's the environment yeah. in which right. you thrive, but it's any sport. Right. It's, it's how does a sport that's not currently using a methodology or a piece of a methodology begin to incorporate that for the betterment of the entire sport? Good question. I, I so when I was sitting in front of the front office, of the Dodgers and we were they were looking at implementing my system. Um, and basically the first thing I wanted to show them is how well we can analyze biometrics and then how that links to everything in the front office, scouting, player development. Um, that was the criticism was, um, um, I just lost my train of thought. That's okay. It was was how to add a new methodology. Oh yeah. I was, I was saying you, you have to have an approach. So for them to really sit there and look at something that, is a piece of the puzzle or ultimately every piece of the puzzle, they, they have to come up with an approach. They have to accept an approach, a methodology within the organization, because if you have like a really good tool, but one coach is using it this way and another coach is using it a totally opposite way, you have what baseball has, which is total chaos. So you really have to have a central understanding within the organization of how the, all the pieces go together. So when each tool comes in, you know what that tool is helping and then how it's collectively helping the whole approach. So how does, so, the, how, do, how does the team react to you when you bring them your methodology? They freak out because they don't have a methodology. So they freak out. So it's like every, every single team I've met with, that's, that's the consensus. They get very nervous because they don't have a methodology. So they're, they're very comfortable with taking tools from you but they are not comfortable at all at taking a methodology from them because that would force them to create a cohesiveness within their organization, which none of them have. And it's, it's dysfunctional because of it. So the, the person who would disagree with you, right. And I'm not suggesting that that's me. 
the person who would disagree with you would probably argue, maybe Brent, your system's not good enough. And that's why they're not taking it. Yeah, I've heard that criticism, but I would argue, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I, I believe it. But so um, how do you overcome something like that? Because I think that this is where we get to the point of, again, it transcends baseball because people are trying things and not being successful right away. But you haven't been like, oh, okay, they said no. So I guess my system doesn't work. I'm going to move on. You've seen it work. So, So what do you do now? How do you continue to move that forward? I just at the end of the day, when I went to the Dodgers and I went to the Rays and I went to the Indians and these other teams, you know, I, I wanted to help them out of just, obviously I felt like I would have gained credibility, but also out of goodwill. I don't have to help them. So if, if they don't want it, I just help myself. Unfortunately, and I keep producing testimonials and keep growing my camps and everything gets better and I'm happy. So it's like, fine, I'll keep it to myself. I would like to share it, but I guess I'll have to keep it to myself. (laughs) (laughs) What's up, guys? Dr. Sean here. I just wanted to interrupt the show for a quick moment to remind you that if you're looking for more content from us than we give on this show, you can head to our website, performancecarerx.com. We have links to our YouTube channel, our one-on-one programming options, our Bulletproof programs, seminars, and even assessments and treatment in person linked right there at performancecarerx.com. You guys are amazing. We appreciate you tuning in and listening to this show. We appreciate you following us on social media at ActiveLifeRx. And I want to get you guys right back to this conversation because I know that's what you're really here for. So without further interruption, enjoy the show. I have a very specific question for you, right? Um, what is, what is something like a weighted ball doing? It, well, let me start over. What is the, is there a good way to use weighted balls for training? And is there a bad way to use weighted balls for training? And for people listening who don't know what weighted balls are, it's basically just a heavier version of the same thing. Similar size, heavier. And the idea is if you throw something heavier, hard, you're going to develop musculature to throw something lighter, harder. Yes. And it's a very popular, popular trend right now. So, but at the end of the day, what is it? It's a tool. So it's a tool that is going to fit into hopefully a methodology, right? But then I would argue what methodology is working in that tool because at the end of the day, we understand the approach and what we're trying to do. It's hard to figure out how weighted balls fit in. And people, it's some of the most original studies in baseball from the 1960s were done with ball use on pitching. So I would totally argue no methodology is proven uh, how it fits in. Um, now, now but, when you say how it fits in, do you mean in terms of any kind of usage or are you just talking about using it to throw really hard? Because for the people who, who aren't familiar with, with what we're talking about, I want to give them a little bit of background. People will take a weighted ball that's heavier than what they're used to throwing in the game, crow hop or, or run jump and throw it as hard as they can. Um, yeah, so that's a, they're using it as a velocity tool. But okay. yeah, we could use it as a warm-up tool. We could use it as a proprioception tool for the arm, uh, which I've heard. But what what tool is it? And the problem is, like I said, those that fit in as a warm-up tool, I'd, I'd like to understand what's their approach to warm-up and, and why is that such a great warm-up tool. Uh, my point is, is for any tool purpose it serves, I would question the methodology behind it because it 
it, if, if you understand where I come from in my approach, it's ground up. We believe force is generated in the ground. We believe the body, which is the kinetic chain, transfers that potential energy that came from the ground through their body. They can multiply forces with it, and then they eventually get it to the ball. When you think of that, the ball it is, is where the energy is transferred at the end. How we weight it, yes, will infect, it will affect the timing of movement, but it shouldn't affect the force production to that point. Of course, if you have a heavier ball, you feel like you're going to have to move harder, but you could do a lot of other things in kinetic chain to, to, to do that, which are probably closer to the moment of releasing the ball, which is like overcompensating. So the point is, is I would always argue the methodology that is using that tool. But you're right. Those who use it for a velocity tool make it even worse of a tool in my mind because then it comes down to the big problem we have in baseball is we have a pattern of injury. And I'm sure if anyone knows anything about baseball knows that baseball is loaded with arm injury, with UCL damage, with rotator cuff or shoulder damage. Um, and obviously that's coming from throwing, which all the case studies show. So we're going to take an, uh, a tool that forces us to overload what we already have a problem with is in throwing and don't, and obviously it's going to lead to more injuries. So, <laughs> well, so, so Brent, how do you, how do you answer the, the criticism to that argument of every ball is a weighted ball and, and children throw a ball that's the same size as Noah Syndergaard who pitches for the Mets and is six foot five, 200 and whatever pounds. Right. And you have a little leaguer yeah. throwing the same ball. How, how do you argue that um, a, a guy like Noah throwing a heavier ball is worse for him than a little leaguer throwing a ball the same weight? Well, that's why we recommend those kids not throw as much. And obviously they don't throw as hard. So they're throwing the same weight. They're just not performing the same level with the weight because they potentially can't. So the body's just adapting. Right. And the reason I, I don't call a five ounce ball a weighted ball. It's because it's the standard that we all use and it's the one we're going to throw the most. So that's the one your body's always going to have to be accustomed to. So anything outside of that changes technique, changes the loads, the torques, and your body's going to adapt. So a major leaguer adapts differently to a five ounce ball than a little league pitcher adapts. The little league pitcher adapts and probably doesn't throw it much more than 50 miles an hour to it when he adapts. And he can only throw it a certain amount of times. He's probably, his arm is going to break down a lot sooner than the, the major leaguer. So it, the fact that they're throwing the same object doesn't mean that they're throwing a weighted ball. Uh, I guess you could say they're throwing a weighted ball as compared to the bigger guy, but they're adapting to that by slowing down, which if you look at the, the case studies on weighted balls for say an adult athlete, they're doing the same thing. When they throw a five ounce ball, they throw it, faster than they throw the, the six, seven ounce ball. And when they throw the six, seven ounce ball, they start to throw it slower. The body has to adapt to the, the loads because if it's not used to it, or it's not accustomed to it, it gets heavier. They know the torques are going to go up. So the body slows it down and adapts until it can survive that load. But then the question is, if you get adapting to a seven, eight, nine ounce, and now he can throw that as hard as the five ounce, um, and, and yeah, I think that that's where they're coming from. Then they walk in the mound and now they're throwing the five ounce, um, you know, harder and they, they can handle the stress. But the problem is, is what happens when they go to the nine ounce, they blow out in the process because we have a pattern of injury and they're already at maximum with the five ounce. Now they go to the nine ounce and now they're injured. That's the problem. Well, so, so to me, this is, this is essentially the strength coach's argument for a tendo unit. 
right? It's, it's the idea of I'm not counting that rep unless you move the bar this fast, right? So, and I'm not suggesting that that's the best or worst way to train. What I'm suggesting is that that's a thought process out there. And in that thought process, you would be recruiting the same muscle fiber by throwing a lighter ball harder or as hard as you could, as you would throwing a heavier ball, not as fast because you can't. Right. Or am I missing, am I missing the boat on that? No, right, right. So part of the issue that I see with that, right, is there is there has to be an understood inherent risk that if you throw, you're you're putting yourself against the potential for injury. We can all agree to that, right? Throw, throwing throwing an object is not natural. Well, we like we said, we have a pattern of injury, so it's proven. There's a good chance you're going to tear UCL or or, or or tear your shoulder in the process of throwing. So why don't football quarterbacks? have the same kind of injury ideology that baseball pitchers do. Well, same thing. It's going down to how they, the, how they throw the load. So if we look at a quarterback, he's throwing a heavier object. Obviously there's going to be biomechanical changes that um, actually promote less stress in the arm. Football players have to pronate to spiral the football and pronation is proven earlier. Pronation is proven, proven to relieve stress to the elbow. So that helps them. Same thing with tennis players. They have to pronate earlier. But on top of that, um, you're not throwing a football as hard as a baseball. And you're not going to throw it nearly as much as, you know, a professional quarterback is not going to throw it nearly as much as a, uh, you know, as a pitcher, as a, as a pitcher in Major League Baseball. So you're going to be throwing it less. You're throwing it with a technique that's actually better for the arm. And you're throwing it uh, not as hard. So that's why I would say. I think those are all pretty legitimate reasons. Yeah, because at the end of the day, we're just, it's not that you pick up a seven ounce ball and your arm blows out when you pick it up. That's not what we're dealing with. Everybody wants to think black and white. What we're saying is if you've been throwing so much with a five ounce and yeah, you've probably experienced some soreness here and there. Now you go to the nine ounce and you try to throw it the same speed, the same amount, and you've just pushed yourself. If it's, if it's a gauge, you're now redlining when you were just below the red line. And that's the problem. And what about Olympic lifting? You know, so, so, okay, so the weighted ball, we, we understand that potentially there's a place for it, but it's not throwing as hard as possible, as often as possible, um, because there's a place for anything. It's just a matter of, is it good, better, or best, right? Are we, are we costing ourselves an opportunity cost to use it as opposed to a different technique? And that's, a, that's the art of it, right? Yeah. What about weightlifting like we see in, in CrossFit and football? Right where, or even in track where they're doing power cleans, hang cleans, you know, going overhead with a barbell. Why isn't that stuff happening in baseball? As far as why isn't baseball using why isn't baseball using explosive, you know, explosive exercises that are compound that take the entire body to coordinate and achieve when essentially baseball is a coordinated effort of explosive movements. Because of, because of the past time, if you look at the history, it's like, um, you know, just lifting wasn't part of the game a long time ago. And then you, then you get the trickle down of the coaches that are advising the young kids what they should do. They're not advising them to go lift. So now this new generation's coming along, which is post-steroid era, which proved everybody was wrong about lifting, is now starting to promote lifting to these young kids. But you still have those old school approaches out there and advising these kids not to do it. But then you have the, the problem with injury where 
you know, like I said, we already have a pattern of injury and a lot of it has to do with fatigue. So if you put a kid in a lifting approach, say he does, uh, you know, four sets of 15 overhead presses the day before a game. And then the next day he's complaining his arms sore all the whole game and, and he pitches half the innings. Then the coach finds out he lifted the day before and the coach throws the baby out with the bathwater. That's the problem too. Baseball plays too much. They throw too much. So when you try to throw bad lifting or too much lifting overtraining on top of that, it just makes everything worse. And baseball hasn't figured it out. They haven't figured out how to program it. Um, and except for people like us who've taken the time, who've, who've wanted to figure it out. So you figured out the, what works in, in this beautiful world where they're playing less. I know he's got to figure out how to get him to play less. How many, right, exactly. you're, you're, you're the commissioner. How many games are they playing? Well, I mean, if we're looking at pro ball, you're 160 games. Minor league guys are probably closer to 90, 80, 90 games. And then college baseball is what, 60? I don't yeah. know. How many would you have them playing though? Oh, if, if well, if I, I, I spend a lot of time pro ball, so I like looking at pro ball. But if, if I looked at pro ball, I, would, I wouldn't want them to go into the lower levels, specifically rookie ball, where, you know, where they can come in and there's actually no playing. It's just lifting and pins and maybe they inner squad every now and then and create like a development level to, to, to professional baseball and then start to build them in. But still, you know, let's play, uh, you know, four games a week as opposed to seven, you know, or, or, or whatever. So, so I, th- I think that would be the key. Give them, you know, for every road trip, give them a day off or two days off as opposed to jamming all their road trips on top of each other, I think would allow these guys to stay healthy. It would also get the drugs out of the game because they're just doing the drugs because they can't survive physically. Mm-hmm. So, so if I heard that right, you're, you're suggesting a 90 to 100 game season based on reducing. Yeah. Okay. Right. And I, I want to go back to your idea for that real development. Right. Like the, the rookie ball development, because I don't think people realize there's 65 rounds in a baseball draft. Right. Is that, is that right? 65. You know, you, you would know that better than me. I, th- I know they, they think they cut cut them down. I don't know what it is now. I think it's less now. It's a lot. Yeah. So whatever it is, it's 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 more than 50, less than 70. Yeah. There's 30 teams. Yep. That's a lot of guys getting picked every year. That's there's not a lot of roster spots. Right. The whole team doesn't turn over every season. So a lot of these guys are going to a place where they're not really in a realistic situation to become successful because they're expected to perform right away instead of coming out and developing further with with ideally. Right. If you have that kind of a camp in place staff that's going to invest themselves in developing players. Yeah. And Major League Baseball constantly likes to make it worse because now they've done a real hard push to get the older guys out just because it it screws the unions. Um, you know, there's so much incentives for the older guys. The ownerships don't want to pay. So now you're making everybody younger. So now they, they know they have less time to be successful. So they're just trying to speed the process. It's just turn and burn. Baseball, Major League Baseball, just turn and burn, turn and burn. And that's what's unfortunate. But you know what you have going on is you have Japanese baseball exploding. You have Latin America baseball exploding, European baseball exploding, Asian baseball exploding. So what's going to happen is you, you might, if, if, if Major League Baseball doesn't pay attention, they might have a strong competitor very soon in, in the world of baseball. You think so? I do think so because I can see it. I mean, we're sending this year because of this push to go younger, we're sending tons and tons and tons of mid-90s veteran pitchers into independent baseball retirement or across the world. Um, so it's 
they can't even handle their own talent and talent. Now they're just spreading the talent around. We're taking in all the international players and all of our players are being pushed internationally. So if you're just spreading all the talent around at the end of the day, who, who has better player development, who has the, the better marketing, the better scouting departments in all of the world of baseball could start to win. I mean, that would be an interesting day, huh? I think it's going to happen. I wouldn't say soon, but I think it's going to happen to where this country might start watching as much Japanese baseball as it is watching Major League Baseball. The organized cheering. That might, that <laughs> might draw it in. Exactly. <laughs> I was I was I was in Japan. I've seen the organized cheering, you know, you up, up close in person. It's cool. I mean, it's it's it it's, it's, cool. it's interesting. You gotta um, be into it. No, yeah. it's annoying. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. It's like Duke basketball, as far as I'm concerned. Annoying. Right. Very annoying. Right, um, exactly. But yes, um, I'm fascinated by your approach because it's it's basically it's athlete, right? It's it's let's build an athlete and then teach him how to play baseball. Um, which which doesn't fit in baseball, but you know, and I knew that going into it, and I knew I was going to be on an island, and I knew I was going to, you know, I've even gotten death threats, which is crazy. Death because threats? Yeah. Who's threatening your life? You this was when I started. <laughs> when I started ten years ago. And I started pushing Olympic lifting into baseball. I started pushing, pushing the you know metrics of like a combine into baseball, identifying the athletes, developing the athlete as a pitcher. And it was, you're going to hurt these pitchers. You're going to ruin this game. And then there's this one guy, he locked into me every day. He said he was going to make it. He was going to devote his life to taking me down. And then eventually turned into, I'm going to kill you and your family. And then I had to call the police. That is insanity. I know, but that's what happens when you challenge <laughs> an, uh, an old man doing things. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't fun. It scared the crap out of me. No, so. I bet. But so I, I think that there's a really good lesson here for people who are listening to this because I mean, we talked a lot about baseball. We talked a lot about methodology, but we didn't talk that much. And I want to bring to the surface the idea that. There's a massive process that you, Brent Porcio, yeah. have to be in love with to go to work tomorrow, right? Because the, the people who, by all public standards, right? I mean, listen, we, you and I can have a conversation all day where I say, I think what you're doing is great. But if no one in pro baseball says, I want to bring you in and have you teach my staff how to do this, then public perception is it might be less than. Yeah. So you have to have a process where you're like, you know what? It's more important to me that this happens tomorrow than that I have public approval. Yeah. I mean, I've been focused on the guys. I've been focused on helping people. Um, and, I, and every guy who comes in here, I really devote more than what I feel like they invest into me. And it's always been my thing. I'm going to give you more than what you've paid. And and that's what I do. And, and I, and I love seeing them go through these, these experiences because I'm just reliving what I went through after I tore my rotator cuff. And I got myself back to when I'm back, I was probably mid eighties when I tore my rotator cuff to low to mid nineties. And I played independent baseball and got to play with my idols. You know, I, I'm actually reliving that every time I train a guy, specifically a guy who comes in that loves my story and is almost in the same place. I'm reliving it. And I just got another guy who's coming in. Unbelievable story. This guy turned down, I think, $1.7 million out of in a high school draft um, to go to college baseball. And he immediately got hurt, and he's devastated. He doesn't know what to do. 
and I'm, I'm sitting down with this kid and I'm just sharing with him what I went through and what we do here. And he, he just loves it. And, and now I'm going to work with this kid. And once again, I'm going to go right through my life again and, and have that experience again. So that's why I do it. And, and I get, I have more testimonials than any other um, online velocity program because of this. And I, and I love the moment when I get to interview those kids for my testimonials and they get to tell their story and talk about the process. And then I can hear the, you know, I can hear the success and what we're doing and how it's working. And you're right. Eventually you're going, you're, I, I'm laughing at this point. It's kind of, I'm kind of like going, I mean, when, when are people going to just drop the conventional wisdom and, and catch up with the times people? I mean, <laughs> It's just crazy. And then to see the weighted ball trend, and the, which to me is a quick fix, let's get a little pop. Um, it just blows my mind when you know, all you have to do is, is learn the science, like learn what you guys are doing, understanding how the body works best, and then and jumping on the bandwagon because it works. Because I'm waiting for the system to just completely swing this way, and then I got to retire because everybody's in it. Well, but, but you just made a really good point that, that – Weighted ball is, is for example, I don't want to demonize weighted balls, right? But but a weighted ball is a quick fix because you will potentially gain one, three miles an hour. Right. But here's why it's a quick fix. People need to understand this. This is why it's a quick fix. If you look at the study, the main thing being influenced is the arm speeds. So when you add a heavier ball, your arm speeds go down. But when you try to throw it as hard as you did with the, with the five-ounce ball, your arm speeds go even higher than they had to with the five-ounce ball. Say that so again. Can you repeat that? So when you throw a heavier ball, your arm speeds go down because the ball speed's gone down considerably. Right. But when you push, based on the studies, when you push the ball speed to the same speed of the lighter ball, got it, with got it, got heavier it. ball, your arm speeds had to go faster than the heavier so ball. So to throw 90 with a 9-ounce ball, you have to be moving your arm faster than you have to move it to throw a 5-ounce ball right. 90. And that's got why it. it's dangerous, and that's why kids are blowing out on it. Because mm -hmm. that's why I said if it's a warm-up tool, I'm fine. But if you're telling a kid to throw a nine-ounce ball as hard as you threw a five-ounce ball, you're going to blow them out. Sure, so, it makes common sense. Right. So, but the but the quick fix is you can just get a little pop at the end of the chain by increasing the arm speeds, and and you can see an, an increase because studies show about a two to three miles an hour increase with the weight of balls. But at what risk? Obviously, at a high risk. So that's where it's the quick fix because if you look studies that show professional pitchers actually put less torques on their arm based on their body weight than even youth pitchers. And you also have studies that show a very poor correlation to arm speeds to ball speed. So basically pro pitchers are better at using their body, but that, so that's why it's the quick fix because to sit there and build the body to throw harder is a lot harder than to sit there and teach the arm to throw. Well, harder. That's, and that's where I was going, right? Cause you get a guy who comes in to see you and he's, let's just say a college junior looking to go to the draft. Right. Brent, I need to add three miles an hour so that I can go to the draft. I need to I need to move up from the 15th round to the fourth round. Right? I need to get paid. That guy doesn't want to hear, OK, we're going to spend a year building your base. You're right. And I tell him to leave if that's what he wants, to, if he doesn't want to hear that, because I'm not going to sit there. I can't. I'm not going to compromise my methodology to get you 10 miles an hour in two months. Um, because you don't want to work at it. Well, I don't I mean, even think it's, I don't even think it's considering compromising your methodology. It's compromising your values. Exactly. Right? And it's, 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 putting it's, him at high risk of injury, because to tell you the truth, if I injure someone, it crushes me. I had one guy get injured um, and found out later he was playing behind my back. I told him not to play. He was playing while we were training and he tore his labrum. 
And it, and it was very young, very early in my programs. And I changed a lot of things at that point. And it devastated me. I was depressed because, like I said, I lived through these guys. So it was like me going through my injury again. It, it, it crushed me. So I pride myself on not having injury. And people think I'm full of crap. I'm hiding it. I don't have injury because that's what I pride myself on. And that's what I work hard for. And that's why I set my standards. And I don't lower, you know, like you said, my values. I'm, I'm, I know what they have to do to be healthy and get better. So you're making a living now, right? I'm doing very good. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> good. We're about, to move in a, we're about to move into an 8,000 square foot facility with top V, which not many guys online have been able to invest in these big facilities just through their programming. That's so awesome. I'm, Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. What advice do you have for the coaches out there right? or for anyone, right? You're out there and, and you've tested your model, you know, your model works, but they're early and they're not making any money and no one's listening and no one's looking for them. What's the advice? And, and, and actually, before we even get to that, we'll leave them cliffhanging for a second. How long did you have, like, how constantly is your system continuing to evolve? Because I think another question that people run into is, well, how do I know when I found it? When do I start to roll it out? When, when do I start to what? So roll it out. Right. Like you didn't say, okay. Hey, I know how to do this now. Boom. Day one, I'm going to open. Well, the, the, well, the thing was, is in, in that question is you need to understand those that are doing this for a business that just like in anything, you have to pay your dues. Like you can't just, there's nothing you can go to and be a millionaire overnight unless you got crazy lucky. Um, you, you have to pay your dues. I'm sure even people that win the lottery played it forever. You know, so <laughs> right. They didn't, unlikely they won on their first ticket. <laughs> right. So it's like you, you got to pay your dues. So it, you have to understand that. Yeah, there is easy money in anything. But is that something that produces longevity in your business? So you have to say, hey, this is going to take time to build it. I have to build this. I have to build a reputation. I have to build uh, testimonials. And if you take the right road, it will take longer. But the point is, is once you create momentum in it, you have you're going to create two things. You're not only going to create financial success, but you're going to create purpose in your life. You're actually going to love what you're going to do. You're going to feel that you're helping and not just taking. And at the end of the day, that, that's going to prevent you from being an alcoholic or just dying unhappy, right? So there's got to be purpose in everything we do. So uh, yeah, it's, it's a longer run, but if you just stay the course, pay your dues, work another job in the process to just get it to that point, get the ball rolling, it happens. I had to go through that. I made when I first started this business, I was making $200 a month and spending half my time on it. You know, and, and three years later, I, I quit my job and did it full time and barely made it by. And then now I'm as successful as I want to be. I mean, I still have, like you said, I still want this to evolve. You know, organizations like you with Active Life, you guys make me better. Um, you know, and there's, there's other aspects to what we do where I learn and I, and I read case studies every day and it constantly makes me better. Like I don't ever see the only reason I'll stop evolving this approach is when I stop investing my time in research and development because new information always makes us better. Um, and there's always more to learn. And there, I know there's tons more to learn. Uh, the, but the problem is, is getting this into an organization takes the same process. You know, we were talking about the Dodgers, them saying it will, I heard a criticism that they said it didn't work. That's why we didn't use Brent. But it, this, but they told me face to face the reason they didn't want to move forward was because of too much bandwidth. So too, too much bandwidth is um, 
is 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 telling me it's too hard and you know the sorry i, I got distracted but too much bandwidth is telling me it's too hard but then they're saying it doesn't work so what was it is it too hard or is it doesn't work i feel like it doesn't work is an excuse well it doesn't work because it's too hard i i i mean i'm, I'm not i'm not suggesting I'm that that's right, right. That, that that's an excuse but that's that's the Brent, it's not fast enough. We don't want to wait five years. We don't want to tear the team down. We don't want to start back from scratch. And when in five years, four, ten years, we want to win now for now. Right. So I listen, I, I think that there you answered both of those questions at the same time. And I hope that people listening got the value from it because the idea is same thing for us. We spend two years, Jeremy and I, right? Not giving this to anybody. Nobody, our systems, nobody was doing it. We were, we had local people testing it. We had a few remote people testing it to make sure it worked before we told anybody we would sell it to them. We were, we were on a, we were doctors on a salary of $25,000 a year. I had coaches in my CrossFit gym making more money than I was making. Right. So it's, yeah, it's, of course. it's, it's, it's not a, it, you have to be willing to do that to get, to get things done. In my opinion, you know, I mean, there's, there's, there's always the anomaly, but I, that's why I wanted to hear if you went through a similar experience. It was cool to hear you. No, did. I think we all do. I mean, I, when I meet someone like you who's having incredibly, having great success and inspiring me, I know you've gone through the same thing. I think we've, that's what we share in common. We're all, we've all really worked hard to build integrity and, and to build a successful business around that, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I appreciate that in you as well. I have, I have one last question for you. Well, two last questions for you. One is you said you reached low to mid 90s. Every pitcher knows. What was the number? Uh, well, the, the hardest I ever hit, I was ever told, was 94. Okay. So, That's good. So I never actually, they held the gun, but in a game, several times, my coach, my coach walked to me today and said, I was impressed. You sat, you sat 94 um, you know, most of the game. And then I had, uh, I saw charts that I had 94. So 94 was the hardest I ever saw. Cause we always want to see what was our highest, but I, of course I was, I would average like 91, 92. And then my, I would peak at 94. Um, I might've hit a 95 every then who knows, but no, 94 is the only thing I know. I remember but yeah, my, my challenge was and why I didn't continue to play is I would have games at 86 to 88. And then I'd have games at 92 to or 91 to 94. Right. I had a hard time being consistent with my velocity. I think it was just correlated to still trying to get good at the training in the shoulder integrity was never the same after the surgery so sure i remember the ball i i still remember the ball i think i threw the hardest in my life because it left my hand and i was like you heard the and i was waiting for the pop and instead i heard a ping and a on the way out <laughs> i was like damn <laughs> well hey you gotta take the credit for that that home run and some of those oh it's still going that came out of that ball were actually in your the speed of the ball right it's still going mike ambort ended up going to lamar university on a scholarship at a rockville center new york he hit a line drive off me that never went higher than like 12 feet and i swear it went 400 feet Jeez, <laughs> I, I me. I've given up my my dingers too, man. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and so the last question I want to ask you is, you know, if if you could tear it all down, right? The whole thing starts over again. I'm talking about strength and conditioning in sports, baseball in particular, right? It's it's from scratch, and we're saying, Brent, how do we start this thing? Well, I love with 
being a, I'm more of a biomechanics analyst that I've, I've believed in a strength coach, even though I would say I'm a strength coach, but I'm, I'm really good at a biomechanics analyst. So I'm going to start where energy is created and in the floor, in the ground. I think not enough young athletes understand how to interact with the ground and just teaching them basic movements of ground forces and how to move your body in different planes and different directions. And then how that energy can move multi-planar through the transverse plane. I, I think that's the essence of it, teaching them basics of movement, ground forces, and then building athletes from that. Uh, elite athletes from that and building and then the skill the, the biomechanics on top of that i think that's the key it's like a cake you know yeah you, you get you start you start with this is what you need to be able to express and now we're going to teach you how to express it yeah and the skill should be at the end and the problem is baseball always tries to do this the skill in the beginning well as, as frustrating as i'm sure that is for you that is a that is not unique to baseball. Yeah, no. it's, <laughs> I mean, it's most of our listeners are probably still CrossFit athletes at this point. And it's, you know, they walk in the gym. What's the goal? I want to get a muscle up. It's never, I want to develop enough strength to be able to do a muscle up. And I want to be able to have enough positional awareness and enough flexibility and mobility to do a muscle up. It's, I want to do a muscle up. I want to get that trick. As opposed to, I want to get those foundations. Yeah, you're right, and that's the problem. Is, is you, you gotta, they gotta learn to eat their vegetables before they start eating their desserts, right? Well, my philosophy is that there are gyms, there are coaches who will give them that. They will teach them that trick, and they will be wildly successful in some cases for the long term, but in most cases for the short term. And the people who are sitting there teaching the fundamentals and the foundations and digging and digging and digging into what needs to happen first. We'll be waiting there at the end. Yeah. We call that a uh, weighted balls and extreme long toss. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'll end it on that note. Thank you, Brent. I appreciate you coming on today, my man. Thanks, man. Anytime. It's an honor being with you, man. I appreciate it. And I'm glad that uh, we can share um, our experiences and our work together. Yeah, absolutely. I look forward to getting down there and getting on a mound again. Yeah. And me, same coming up to you. So we'll do it. Hey, man. Thank you for listening to the Active Life podcast today. I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you did, please make sure you head to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating so that we can grow and reach and help more people. If you're looking for more from me and my team, head to performancecarerx.com. All the help you're looking for is right there. Until next time, guys, I'm Dr. Sean Pastuch, and the process is the goal.